I'm Jordan Abel, and I welcome you to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the JCCSF. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, our guests are three Indigenous chefs at the forefront of Native American cuisine in the Bay Area. Crystal Wapapa of Wapapa's Kitchen, and Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino of Mak Amham and Cafe Aloni in Berkeley. They're joined in conversation by Joshua Hoyt from the Feast of Nations program at the American Indian Child Resource Center. Then, at the end of the hour, we feature a reading by novelist Tommy Orange, whose debut novel, There There, explores what it means to be an urban Indian. And now, join Twee Tran on stage at the JCCSF as she introduces our guests. Some of us came here as refugees and immigrants and have spent our lives seeking and creating spaces of inclusion and belonging. Some of us have ancestors who've been here for thousands of years, yet are still fighting for visibility and recognition. As we strive to create a more just and equitable society together, I want to acknowledge that we are gathered today on Ramatush Ohlone land, today protected by the Mawekma Ohlone tribe of the SF Bay Area, and we are full of gratitude for the Native American communities that have stewarded this land over the years and continue to do so. As we come together for this delicious meal prepared by Chef Crystal Wapipa, We ask that you reflect with your table mates on these questions. What does it mean to honor the land? What does it mean to keep the seed, to preserve our heritage and traditions? What does it mean to stand with and be in solidarity with our indigenous communities? And what ways can we contribute towards healing the earth in a time of environmental crisis? We want this evening to be for you, to share a meal together, to share stories, to share comfort, with a person next to you, across from you, or maybe you'll find comfort in a bowl of roasted corn soup that Krista will be making. Ultimately, I hope you walk out with a bigger community than when you arrive and a greater sense of awareness of the land we live on and the people we share our lives with. Quickly, I'd like to thank our community partners, um, the American Indian Child Resource Center and La Cocina, Big thank you to Joshua Hoyt again and his team for creating a menu of indigenous tea that both inspires and comforts. You'll hear from Josh throughout the evening. He's very excited. Thank you to Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino, the duo behind Makamham and Cafe Ohlone. Because of them, we're able to learn about and taste Ohlone food traditions. And last but not least, thank you to Crystal. Without her, this event wouldn't exist. She is a powerhouse, cooking her way across the country and sharing the dishes of her childhood and keeping her native food traditions alive. I know that her Kikapu tribe in Oklahoma are so proud of her, and we are so lucky to know her and to have her here in the Bay and with us tonight. Um, I want to invite up Joshua Hoyt, who made our teas tonight. Um, Josh is the Pony Program Coordinator at the American Indian Child Resource Center. Pony stands for Preparing Oakland Native Youth. He's also head of their Feast of Nations program and educates around Indigenous issues, food traditions, and storytelling. So Josh is going to tell us a little bit about his programs. Hi, thank you. Um, so I wanted to just start by talking a little bit about 
my food story and how I ended up doing indigenous foods. Um, you know, I started in a household where my mom is Italian and my dad was born and raised on the reservation. Um, and we mostly ate Italian food. Um, <laughs> so I didn't have a lot of traditional foods growing up except for Italian traditional foods. But it was always an important way that we sort of expressed, uh, you know, love um, and our, the things that made our culture unique um, as Italians. Uh, my, so my great-grandmother came over um, from Italy uh, and was alive until I was about 13. Um, and so I got to learn from my mom who learned from her. Um, and so I have this long tradition of long food tradition. And then when I went to work, uh, I worked on a fishing boat in Alaska. It was one of my first jobs. Um, I'm fortunate to be from Seattle uh, in the Northwest. So I'd grown up with fish, um, and I got to appreciate the, the integrity of an ingredient. I ate salmon every day for two months and never got tired of it. And then as I started to cook more and more on my own, and I eventually became a chef, uh, well, not actually a chef, I was a line cook. Uh, I worked in, a ki in kitchens for about four years, uh, mostly learning French techniques, because uh, that's what almost all commercial kitchens are based on. Um, and I got this really intense interest in the way that culture and food overlap. And I got really interested in Thai food, actually. Um, and it showed me that this, these specific ingredients that you use are really what make the food. I know that sounds obvious, um, but I remember trying to make a Thai soup and I used ginger. Um, and in fact, ginger is not what you wanted to use. You wanted to use galangal, I think that's how you say it, uh, which is a different kind of ginger and it totally changes how the food tastes. Um, so. I was cooking in kitchens, and eventually I didn't want to stay up all night uh, on the weekends. I wanted to have a real life, and I wanted to make more than $12 an hour. Um, so I went back to school, but I always missed cooking. And I had all these lifelong of experiences with cooking. Um, and then I went to the American Indian Child Resource Center, and they happened to have this program uh, where you teach youth how to cook, but you also teach them how to cook with indigenous ingredients. And I started to dive into indigenous ingredients. Prior to that, I knew very little. I knew that my family cooked, you know, bison, um, but that wasn't widely available. Um, and so as I dove into these indigenous ingredients, uh, it is the most exciting thing as a chef, not just as an indigenous person, but as a cook, the most exciting work I've ever done uh, because they're there is an entire continent of ingredients that are almost unused. Um, so the indigenous foods you may be familiar with, like corn, uh, every tribe that has corn, California is one of the few places that um, did not adopt corn because I think they, you know, they were happy with what they had. Um, my tribe grew corn and uh, Every tribe has its own kind of corn. So you'll see these little things. I, I think I saw them earlier called Indian corn. We use it as a decoration around this time of year. But 
It's actually made up usually of multiple different varieties of corn from different tribes. And each corn has its own purpose. Um, So there's corn that is specifically for popping, uh, which I found on sale at Whole Foods today, uh, without any mention that that's what kind of corn it was. But So these things exist. Um, They're just not being deployed by Native people. And then there's a lot of foods that just aren't even in use. Um, So I get to do this incredibly exciting work where I work with youth and we explore these ingredients, um, you know, from our tribes. Uh, We learn how to cook together and we get to, you know, reconnect to all the different things that food meant to different tribes. Um, So that's been an amazing experience. And part of the thing that we are learning is that you have to recreate not just, uh, you can't just take a little bit of food, you have to recreate an entire food system. Um, And so that's taking a lot of work. Um, And so our initiative for that is we have a garden, and it's fairly small. um, And what we do is we grow seeds, essentially. It's a seed garden um, where we use different types of indigenous plants, Um, but we have different types of beans, different types of corn, Uh, we grow ceremonial foods, um, and different items like tobacco, and our hope is what we're working on, it's called Sovereign Seeds and Starts, and we are trying to spread these plants to other tribes, so a lot of tribes are interested in sort of recapturing some of their uh, traditional foods and plants. Um, other indigenous people, and eventually, you know, I think these foods will make their way into restaurants um, and the food scene, as lots of things, you know, ultimately do, because they're beautiful and delicious. Um, So, yeah, those are our two programs, and we're trying to build each one um, and sort of rejuvenate this entire food system that has been uh, sort of left in many ways dormant because there definitely is a renaissance happening all over the country particularly around food so thank you very much okay i'm gonna read these bios um Okay, Chef Crystal Wapapa hails from the Kickapoo tribe in Oklahoma. Her family relocated to Oakland in the 1950s, where she was born and raised. Chef Crystal's food reflects her Kickapoo heritage and Oakland upbringing amongst the urban Native American community. Having learned traditional recipes in her grandmother's kitchen, she sees food as a source of cultural preservation and community connection. A La Cocina graduate, Chef Crystal has gone on to become the first Native American chef to be featured on Food Network's Chop TV. Uh, And currently has her own food business, Wapapa's Kitchen, the first one of its kind in the Bay Area. Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino are the duo behind Mak Amham and Cafe Ohlone. They are proud of their Indian identities and are active in the ongoing revival of their language. Chochenyo from the East Bay and Rumson from the Carmel Valley. Okay. <laughs> um, so just to start, I was wondering um, 
how you ended up doing indigenous food and maybe sort of the significance um, of indigenous food. And I'll start with you. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for coming and listening about indigenous foods and tasting and learning and the knowledge of it. Sometimes the word, how did you start to do it, it's, um, it's just something that um, came natural to me as a young child, um, how I grew up here in the Bay Area um, with the Native community and always seen as a young child and with my grandparents um, eating Native foods and always wondering when we passed Berkeley why there was no Native American restaurant. And so that bothered me probably at a really young age, probably around seven um, I was raised into the American Indian movement here in the Bay, and we went to Alcatraz. We did different conference, and as me being a young child, um, we always have these beautiful foods, and I always wondered, hey, we're in Berkeley, and even as a young child, and even in San Francisco, I always wondered why there was no Native foods, only at home or if we went Back to our home, or either we have an event, powwow, celebration, and I always wondered. So it came to me as a young child about being an indigenous chef. How can I go about it? But there's always a right time and a right place for everything. So <clears throat> I end up embracing the kitchen with my grandmother, embracing how food was harvested, how we did it what the meaning was, and I always had questions. And so when you ask, how did I become indigenous chef? I say it chose me. Actually, can you tell us about what we ate? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Today you guys ate, we started off with the bison meatballs with um, blueberries, and we started off with the... <clears throat> corn fritters, which is a hand harvest wild rice. And so I love berries, if you couldn't tell, in the, all the dishes. <laughs> and um, with the, when it comes down to the bison meatballs, I love bison. <laughs> and when it comes with berries, I like incorporating berries into my food because it says a lot about indigenous foods, about um, how we harvest it, how we use it, and what it's used for. So today, what you guys are eating is one of the harvest sweet dried corn soup with the pumpkins. And I chose to use an Angus beef. Ceremonially and traditionally, we use venison. And so I just thought I'd add a, my own little twist on it, and which is the Angus beef into it. Thank you. Uh, okay. Let's go back to the question that I started with. Well, uh, when I was growing up as a young person, I grew up in my homeland in the East Bay where all of my family has always lived. And there's never been a generation of my family that's ever lived away from that place. And we've been able to persist there and, and thrive there, even in spite of a lot of the hardships our people have faced in the past with colonization and suppression. However, colonization did impact us in a big way, where our food traditions, our language, pretty much every specific part of our culture was actively um, suppressed and attempted to be squelched so that our people would become more Western, assimilated, and 
eventually become um, uh, more Western-oriented. And that never worked. Uh, our people never gave up those ways. And they found every way possible to keep our traditions alive. Our language, our stories, our food traditions, all those things were kept alive. But when it was difficult for our people to keep those things alive because of how violent things were in California, it was legal for a time here in California to kill our people, where the state government would issue bounties uh, for the number of scalps of Indian people here in California. And because of the, the suppression and the multiple waves of suppression, starting with the missions here in California, then the, the Mexican period, then the gold rush, and then the fact that our people weren't even allowed to vote until the 1920s and then not even practice our religion freely until the 1970s, what we say is that a lot of those specific traditions, they went to sleep. We never say that they went away because they were preserved. Our ancestors had foresight, and what they did was they left um, what they could when they saw that these ways could be possibly um, extinguished, that they, when we were down to just the last few speakers of our languages, the last few people who held on to a lot of the specific knowledge, what happened was our people recorded it. In the 1920s and 30s in Sunol, about 50 miles east of here, that's where my great-grandma was born, there was a linguist from Washington, D.C. who came in and recorded our, our old-timers in the 1920s and 30s from our area as well as Lewis's area in Carmel. And these people shared language. They, t they told as much as they could. They shared thousands of pages about our food traditions, about our language, our religion, our values, our stories. We could even hear their, their voices on old wax cylinder recordings. And they talked a lot about our hopes for our people in the future, too. And we know that our people weren't just sitting down recording this for no reason. They were recording this so that when it was safer, our people would be allowed to revive and reawaken these traditions, and then they could just become a part of our lives again. Now, beyond those old records, our people also um, continued as much as we could and my great-grandmother, Mary Archuleta, she, uh, she would gather our traditional foods. She would speak our language when she was young. And she carried on as much as she could and then passed that down. So we have a living oral tradition as well as this, this written tradition. And both Lewis and myself have spent extensive time in, for my culture. Um, we've revived our language as well as in Lewis's area. And my, my whole adult life has been spent working with those old documents. And when I started to work with those documents, originally it was because I wanted to learn my language. I wanted to learn how to speak my language and do this with my family. And then I started to realize that there was a lot more that our people wanted revived beyond just our language. They talked about foods. And that changed my perception of a lot of indigenous foods because... You know, often we think about um, foods from the plains, or we think about foods from the southwest. But our people, and those are delicious foods, I want to acknowledge that too. But our people would talk about acorn, clover lettuce, watercress. They would talk about manzanita. They would talk about yerba buena. They would talk about these indigenous foods of this place, and then they would share stories about them. They would share recipes. They would talk about where to gather them, how to pray over them. They would talk about how much they loved them. 
Sometimes they would even say that they wanted to have some right then. You're listening to Crystal Wapapa of Wapapa's Kitchen and Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino of Makamham and Cafe Aloni. They're joined in conversation by Joshua Hoyt. On Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. And then you see our people today who are still thriving because there's, there's thousands of Ohlone people today. There's about 800 people in my tribe, and in the entire Ohlone community, there's probably about 5,000 of us. But when you see the people alive today in our tribe, you know, you want to make that thing better for them. You know, you want to repair what was taken from us so that it's easier for the next generation. But then it's also so that our ancestors, that their sacrifices were never in vain, that we could acknowledge the sacrifices that they made for us and continue on with the work that they did to make sure that this lives. We can't be on the fence. We have to choose a side with it all. And we know what side we're on. We're on our side, our Ohlone side. So we want to make sure that with these food traditions, that they go back to our people. Because it can be isolating when you don't see your, your culture represented at home. When you're in your place, but you don't see very many reminders of your existence. And I know growing up, I wondered, you know, what did these old foods taste like? And I would see, because I grew up in the East Bay, in an urban area where... All my friends would go to different restaurants from their cultures, and they would ask us to come, and you could see the pride that they had when they would go and, and share the food from their families. And then when you would go to those, cult, those restaurants, you would see how a culture was expressed. You know, you would see art, you would see aesthetics, you would see how much pride people had in their food. And I always wondered, why don't we have this for us? You know, but we know the answer why, and it was because of how hard colonization hit us. But we also know that there's a way to fix it as well. And that way of fixing it is by very legitimately listening to what our elders tell us with full hearts and by making sure that we read all of those records that our ancestors left us and revive this in the fullest way possible that touches the most people in our tribe as, as we can. And that's what we're seeing right now. So in my family, there's one woman around who remembers hearing our language when she was a young girl. She also remembers that same generation eating these old foods, our Ohlone foods. And all of that stopped when her grandparents' generation started to pass away when she was about six years old. And she saw those people make that choice, that those things, as my grandmother says, um, should be put away for a time so that we could make it to now. Um, those people who put those things away, they were afraid. Um, they were afraid. It was an existential fear that they had. And they made hard choices. But we know that they loved these things because they still made time for one another. And they would get together and they would spend two weeks or more at a time just together having these foods and sharing things privately with one another. And so Gloria is her name, the woman who is there. Um, and she feels, she felt that loss. She witnessed that loss. Um, and she's 87, and she now sees these things coming back again. 
And we do this together, and we do this because of that documentation that was left by our elders from before, and because of the memories of people in our families like Gloria. Um, and when those people get to come to our home, when Gloria comes to our home, when my grandmother comes to our home, and we can make these foods for them, and they can remember seeing the plants that, we, that we've gathered, that we're using in our foods, they, can, they remember them. And it brings back memories from early childhood, happy memories of grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. And that's why we do this work. It's so that we can repair that loss and so that we can feed those old people from before by feeding our people today. Thank you. You, you've touched on this already a little bit, but I wanted to explicitly get to, you know, what are, in what ways is food sort of viewed differently in Native cultures than in general Western cultures? And how does that connect to uh, the other aspects of culture and cultural revival? How um, the food touches base just with, like, for me, from my experience, um, just reviving it. And just like what Vincent said, our foods has been asleep. And we want to revive it. And so it takes our generation to revive it. Our generation to teach these young ones and to learn from our ancestors. Just like I learned from my great-grandmother to my grandmother. And I pass it on. So how we keep it, to me, I'm like, you know, I'm on a revival. There's a revival. I'm reviving indigenous foods. Um, not just with the non-natives, but also in my community, also in my tribe, my children. Things that um, we haven't shared with each other in a long, long time. And so as we come together and get together, um, for instance, I had the utmost high respect of going back to Oklahoma and cooking for, with my tribe and talking about our foods and how it's harvest, where it comes from. And so that's where it begins for me, is working together with your community, with your family. And if you don't know, ask an elder. If you don't have elders, go find one and ask them, what can we do to keep this revived? What can we do to change it? So when you see, when, that, when you have a youth that sees you, what you're doing, and you know what I'm talking about because you work with youth. They watch every move. They watch everything that you say, everything that you do. And so it's up to us, our generation, not our grandmas, but our generation to make this change. It's very well said. And uh, one one thing that I especially want to convey tonight is that the food revival that's happening is interconnected and interwoven with every other aspect of the cultural revival that's happening in our community right now. And an example of this is the food revival that's happening, to see it as being a separate component of, of the other aspects that we're reviving, such as our storytelling, land stewardship, uh, language, um, it, it doesn't work because language, for an example, is connected to every aspect of our food. Land stewardship in our villages, our pre-contact villages, where we gather our foods today, 
are directly connected to where we obtain these foods. So we have to be in these old landscapes where our ancestors in the East Bay have physically lived and where our people still live today. When we gather these foods, there are stories that will be associated with them, often stories that go back into the ancient times, sometimes into our creation times, from the epics, these, these long stories that are recorded that are our original teachings that we still obey, we still read, and we still connect with even nowadays. So it's impossible to separate one aspect of, of uh, the revival from another because it's all connected. And the reality is, you know, we're unabashed in saying that we don't just want one thing back. We want everything back because we know what happened to us wasn't right. We know the fact that people coming into our homes, taking our homes, occupying our homes, refusing to let us have sovereignty over our areas, that this is a crime. And very few people, though, will stand up against this. So we have to find ways to make sense within the system. And that means being able to find every aspect to be unabashed of our identities, but making sure that every other part of our culture is revived to the fullest and that we stand proud unafraid to say that we want all of our identity back. And we're seeing that happen right now in a huge, massive way that's guided by our people from before. We're seeing land stewardship come back right now. We're seeing our foods, our language, our stories, our values, things that I talked about earlier, come back and in, in, uh, flourish a second time, be reawoken, and we know that they won't leave us again. So I wanted to... It's too bad uh, we didn't get to hear from Tommy because, you know, one of the things that he's done is captured what it's like to be an urban, urban Indian is the old term. And I know that you both have, or you all three of you, have different uh, experiences with that, unique experiences with that. And so I wanted to ask about what that's like um, for you. You touched on that a little bit you know, coming to an urban area during the, uh, during the AIM movement or being around during then. And then for you, too, um, having it be your land and also be an urban environment. Hmm. Um, I grew up very different. <laughs> I grew up very, very different. <laughs> And what I mean by that, and I say it in a humble way, um, I grew up having a family full of activists. Growing up in a family with activists and knowing what's right, knowing what's wrong, and growing up here in the Bay Area, and at a young age knowing what is wrong, just about, you know, taking away your food and, and having somebody else have control of your food, it's totally... Totally, totally wrong. <laughs> so um, me growing up in an urban area and wanting to be a native chef was very hard. I'm not going to um, sugarcoat it. It still is hard. It's hard. What I mean by hard, it's the most beautiful and hard and the most soul-searching and the most discovering all at once as being an indigenous chef, of knowing what your people has been through, what your people has embraced and what they ate, where the food comes from. And growing up here in the Bay, we're very, very fortunate to be around different cultures. But when you don't see your own, 
And especially when I was in culinary school, I never seen my own. I would tell people I want to be an indigenous chef. They'd look like, what was she talking about? You know? Um, when you see that and you're growing up with all these different cultures and just like what Vincent said, going into the restaurants and not seeing your own and it does something to you. It gets something fired and sparked up in you. Um, a lot of, you know, me growing up with, you know, being around AIM and, you know, just human rights. No one was wrong, no one was right. And being an indigenous chef here, you have to go around about it in a delicate kind of way. I just didn't want to, um, hey, this is my food. Look at my Native American food. Hey, I just didn't want to do that. There's, there's ways to do it. And knowing the history of it, just because of the historical trauma and the colonization that took place of it, you have to go about it in a very, very delicate way. And so I've been doing this for over 10 years now. Business, eight. I learned a lot about our foods. I learned a lot about the history and what took in place. So it makes you have the most respect for it. It's like your baby. You want to handle it in the right way. Just not my business. I love my business, and I, I love how far it came. But it's much more than Wapipas Kitchen. It's much, much more. It's about giving the past and giving the future what they deserve. And so you have a certain obligation as an indigenous chef to come about it in a very respectful, delicate way, prayerful way, um, understanding it, wrapping your head around why we don't have these foods. And for a long time, you know, I knew why deep down inside, but do you want to just say why? <laughs> you know, I know, I know the real reason why, but... As the years went by, as me being an indigenous chef and me collaborating with other chefs and traveling um, the nation and seeing a lot, there's other people like me. And having the Almighty bring me Vincent Lewis, you know, it, it makes you feel good as an indigenous chef. It makes you feel good knowing there's somebody in your hometown that's on the same path and on that same journey for our food, for our culture, and for our future. So I love that. So I hope I answered your question right. <laughs> Thank you. As I mentioned earlier, we, we are an urban tribe. Uh, our tribe has 800 people. We're here in the Bay Area, specifically in the East Bay. And, uh, you know, we're living in an area that has 7 million people. So that means we're an extreme minority within our place. So that creates some difficult challenges, unique challenges that other tribes might not have because of the urbanity that's built up around us. But the thing is, we come from innovative people. And our people have been along for every step of, you know, of the way with, um, with what's happened the last 240 years and so we've seen this place change, but we also know that there's some things that don't change as well. And the connections to a, to a place don't change. We have a modern phrase in our Chochenyo language, which is makwara pasha irek, a makwara 
the ground turns to stone, but the world is still alive. And when you look around the East Bay, you know, when you look around anywhere around here, you see a lot of stone, concrete, everywhere. But underneath that layer of concrete, it's still land, you know, it's still living. There's no question about that. Those connections are still there. And those old villages that go back to the ancient times, those are all still right in our homeland as well, where we all still live. And so one of the things that I imagine a lot, because I was shaped by my family, by my culture, but I also grew up in an urban area. And there's ways that, there's challenges that are there, of course. You know, having our villages constantly desecrated as a result of developments, having our ancestors' burial areas and our shell mounds constantly under threats, you know, having few places to gather because all of our, our areas where we gather are always being developed. Those are real challenges that we have. Many more as well as a result of urbanization. But in spite of that, this, the survival of our people, the continuity of our people, and the fact that we're also, in many ways, we, we're raised in these urban areas, it makes us think of different possibilities of what might be possible in the future. And no matter what, we're never going to leave our places. Uh, there's no question about that. But what would it look like to indigenize urban landscapes? That's something that I think about a lot. To Ohlone-ize these areas that are very, very, very Western, to decolonize, what does that look like in practicality? And beyond having Cafe Ohlone and our tribe have a stronger presence around our land, we'd like to see bigger things happen as well. Um, freeway signs that have our native place names instead of the Western names that were imposed. Roundhouses in the hills, more than churches, uh, our traditional religious structures. Um, having, um, being able to hear people walk down the streets speaking Chochenyo or seeing acorn soup, more common than coffee shops. These are dreams that we have one day. But in places, little by little, these things can actually develop. And what we're seeing right now with Cafe Ohlone and with this movement to be able to create new things, it means that as long as we value and we understand the rules of what our ancestors left for us to, to carry on, that also allows us to have a lot of new room for creativity as well. Because we're a living culture, we're going to be here tomorrow, so that also means that we have to have sometimes what we call ingenuity, right? Which is thinking, uh, <laughs> thinking outside the box and making sure that we're, uh, that we're being smart about what we want in the future while keeping our traditional values intact. And we're seeing this happen right now, whether that be hashtags in Chochenyo language, whether that be people um, creating new words to fit the needs that we have for modern objects around us, whether that be creating new recipes that, um, that are based on our traditional recipes, using those traditional ingredients with creating new things, it means that we're going to have a place in the future as well while still valuing those traditional ways. And this is how our culture will continue, carrying on in the footsteps of our people from before. This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who've spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guests are Crystal Wapapa of Wapapa's Kitchen and Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino of Mak Amham and Cafe Aloni. 
They're joined in conversation by Joshua Hoyt. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. If you could just talk, we've actually talked a, a lot about the work that you do, but you can, if there's anything you want to just say exactly what you do, uh, the things that you're doing now, um, and then what you're working towards in the future. Um, so Lewis and I, we, we opened up Cafe Ohlone in Berkeley, but just to um, clarify, the way that our, our cafe operates, it's operating to meet the needs of our community. And what that means is that we have a lot of work to do, the both of us do, in order to stand up for our people, to work with our, our tribe in, co- in collaborative ways, but also make sure that we're tending to our fire, making sure that our people are always, um, are always getting what they need from us. And it's work that we take very seriously because these are our families and people that we want to see thrive. And so um, I, I serve on the tribal council for the Muekma Ohlone tribe, and Lewis is very active in the protection of his sacred sites in Monterey, and as well as, um, I don't want to tell everything you're doing, because that's your, but uh, Lewis is doing great things. Uh, and uh, because we have to do a lot of, a lot of uh, other work, that means that our cafe is set up Um, We're currently, until we have finalized hours, when we're able to train people from within our tribe to run the place on a daily basis. And we we have a space that's in Berkeley where we changed it to look like you're walking into one of our old village areas where the place is covered in locally gathered bay laurel and tule and cattails and ohlone art and basketry and our raw ingredients that we collect with our people, like the natural salts and the yerba buena and mugworts and lots of abalone, lots of beautiful things that are reflective of our aesthetics. So that when Ohlone people walk in there, or anybody walks in there, they immediately feel that this is an Ohlone place that w- that's being entered. And we have a series of tastings that are seasonal, that are available at the time, so right now, for an example, it's acorn season. So we're incorporating a lot of acorn into our menu, as well as hazelnuts. When it's springtime, we have a lot of the bitter greens, like clovers. When it's uh, summer, we're going to have uh, a lot of uh, those, those uh, juicy berries that come in, like huckle, um, uh, native blackberries and wild strawberries and uh, smoked meats that get smoked there every single day. Um, the menus are in Chochenyo language. And it's just an expression of our culture that we're very proud of. But that's really the front-facing part of our work. The, the behind-the-scenes work is an organization that our people run uh, called Maka Amham, which in Chochenyo language, it means our food. And this is centered around reviving and returning our traditional foods back to our tribe and back to our people. And the way that we do this is by spending a lot of time listening to our elders about the foods that they remembered as well as this extensive work with that old documentation. And then after we um, take our families, after language classes, for an example, we'll go gathering. We uh, go on big tribal gathering trips where we gather foods and we show people where to gather these foods, where to make them accessible to people. And if it's something that's not accessible, we show them where they can commercially get it so that these foods will be a permanent part of our identities and on the dinner tables of our people. Then, um, then we do a series, after those gathering trips, a series of cooking classes every season 
where then we give people the, the tools that they need to be able to create these recipes at home. And then after that, we have a series of formal dinners for our people where we create an elegant meal where our people can come in, sit down, and be treated um, as respectfully as they can. Because we know a lot of our people have been disrespected more than their fair share in our history. And so we want to take away that and give people a place where they can get dressed up, feel, feel special, feel like they're being taken care of, and be able to have all of these traditional foods on the table, have traditional games come out, stories. And then during these times, we talk about our hopes, our hopes for our family, our hopes for our future. What is our identity going to look like in the future? Building these things up together but making sure that, that our people all have a voice at the table to be able to convey that message so that we're working together. And we also want to acknowledge that this work is collaborative work. It's led by our elders and guided by our ancestors. And that's the truth. And every member of our community is, is, is a part of this work. Everybody who is a member of our tribe, we say that Cafe Aloni is for them because this is something that's uh, being touched on by many people, and we're proud of that, and we're proud to stand with our community. And we're, we're together in this every step of the way, so all the same goes. Teamwork. <laughs> um, we're going to move to audience questions. All right, first question. Um, I was hoping you could all say a little bit more about how you source your ingredients. It's such a big part of your work as chefs and as restaurateurs. Are you sourcing from indigenous farmers and ranchers? Um, what is that part of your work like? Where, where are you getting your foods? And can you speak a little bit to the growing, burgeoning movement of uh, native ranchers and, and farmers? I'm glad you asked that. The, the dinner that you had today is sourced by other indigenous business, farmers, ranchers, and also with the blue corn from Colorado, New Mexico. So Wapipa's Kitchen is beginning to um, just work together with other tribes of coming together and just offering indigenous foods. And so when it, when it becomes that and you're working together, it takes a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of knowledge. On my behalf as an indigenous chef, the foods that you ate, um, I'm very proud because I know where I got them. And I know what the other person on the other side is doing to make it happen so I can make it happen. And so um, I'm very proud of that. So just know that you're, you're eating <clears throat> indigenous foods from other people. And when I, when I cook and when I make it, I know how it's made. I know where it comes from. I know how it's sourced. And I'm very prideful in that when it, when it's, it's my business, and as Wapipa's Kitchen, um, we worked many, many years to get where we're at. And when I say we're, when I say we, not me, we. And that's working together with other tribes to make this happen. So I'm very, very proud of that. And Vincent. Lewis and I and our communities, we, we uh, 
we'll often gather our foods when it's possible. But because of urbanization, one of the challenges is it's not always possible. And if there is a food that's there that, that we, can, uh, we can find available, there's often not enough of it to be able to, uh, to gather in a large amount. And I'll just give you an example of this. Um, where we'll gather our teas, for an example. It's an area that I grew up in, but it's also a very specific area where my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother is from, uh, from the 1700s. And that area, our people have never left that area. So when we're gathering those teas there, it means that we have a relationship with that place. And it means that, for an example, if we see a food that's growing that we want, we have an obligation to be good to that. That means giving proper protocol, praying over that plant, introducing itself, your relationship to the land, acknowledging what it's going to be used for, how it's going to be used because food can make you well, but it can also do the opposite as well. And so we want everything that we prepare to be with good heart and good intentions. But when we can't find a food that's available to us, or we can only find it in a small amount, for an example, hazelnuts, sherak in our language, when we want to go and gather those, we can find hazelnut groves, that's for sure. But California hazelnut groves, the native one, but that also means that there's only a few that are there. And we don't want to overgather because just like as we said, we have a relationship. That also means that we have to be good stewards of those areas as well. So going into an area that's just barely starting to flourish for the first time in who knows how long. And then just taking what, overgathering in that area so that that plant can never really come back for at least a generation or so. That would be that would be disastrous from our perspective. And that would never be something that we would want to do. So that means that we have to be innovative on how we get these traditional foods. And sometimes that means sourcing our hazelnuts, for an example, from outlying areas. So that way our protected hazelnuts here, that they're not disturbed, that we're not disrespecting those areas. So surplusing or um, um, obtaining those hazelnuts from areas where there's abundance of them, where it's the same species but it's just maybe a little bit further out. That way we're being responsible. We're, we're managing and, and um, stewarding our lands with responsibility and with good heart. Uh, another challenge is that it's hard to get game. Um, venison and our traditional game in our homeland just because of urbanization. I mean, you want to try to see somebody hunting a deer in the Oakland flatlands. I mean, I don't think that that's, uh, that's really uh, something you'll see. You know, that's not a, that's not a common thing. But... So that means trying to go a little bit further out as well and always, always wanting to prioritize Native people who are doing this so that we keep this food aligned with our values. Thank you. Can we give a round of applause to Josh, Christo, Vincent, and Lewis? You've been listening to Crystal Wapapa of Wapapa's Kitchen and Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino of Makamham and Cafe Aloni. They were joined in conversation by Joshua Hoyt. Novelist Tommy Orange was originally scheduled to be part of this discussion but couldn't make it due to a travel conflict. So we end this hour with Orange reading from his groundbreaking debut novel, There There, which explores what it means to be an urban Indian using contemporary Oakland and the Bay Area as its backdrop. Here is Tommy Orange. Read a little part. Um, this is when 
one of my characters is on Alcatraz. Um, and when you hear the character Two Shoes being talked about, it's her teddy bear. Um, so she's 11 during the occupation on Alcatraz. And Jackie is her sister. Her name's Opal. Jackie got on a lot better than me. She fell in with a group of teenagers that ran all over the island. The adults were so busy there was no way for them to keep track. I hung by my mom's side. We went around talking to people, attending official meetings where everyone tried to agree on what to do, what to ask for, what our demands would be. The more important seeming Indians tended to get mad more easily. These were the men. And the women weren't listened to as much as our mom would have liked. Those first days went by like weeks. It felt like we were going to stay out there for good, get the feds to build us a school and medical facility and cultural center. At some point, though, my mom told me to go out and see what Jackie was up to. I didn't want to go out there alone, but eventually I got bored enough and went out to see what I could find. I took two shoes with me. I know I'm too old to have him. I'm almost 12. But I took him anyway. I went down to the other side of the lighthouse where it seemed like you weren't supposed to go. I found them by the shore closest to the Golden Gate. They were all over the rocks, pointing at each other and laughing in that wild, cruel way teenagers have about them. I told Two Shoes it probably wasn't such a good idea and that we should just go back. Sister, you don't have to worry. All these people, even these young ones over here, they're all our relatives, so don't be scared. Plus, if anyone comes after you, I'll jump down and bite their ankles. They would never expect that. I'll use my sacred bear medicine on them. It'll put them to sleep. It'll be like instantaneous hibernation. That's what I'll do, sister, so don't worry. Creator made me strong to protect you, Tushu said. I told Tushu to stop talking like an Indian. I don't know what you mean by talking like an Indian, he said. You're not an Indian, T.S., you're a teddy bear. You know, we're not so different. Both of us got our names from pig brain men. Pig brain? Men with pigs for brains. Oh, meaning Columbus called you Indians. For us, it was Teddy Roosevelt's fault. How? He was hunting bear one time, but then found this real scraggly old hungry bear, and he refused to shoot it. Then in the newspapers, there was a comic about that hunting story that made it seem like Mr. Roosevelt was merciful, a real nature lover, that kind of thing. Then they made the little stuffed bear and named it Teddy's Bear. Teddy's Bear became Teddy Bear. What they didn't say was that he slit that old bear's throat. It's that kind of mercy they don't want you to know about. And how do you know about any of this? You got to know about the history of your people, how you got to be here. That's all based on what people done to get you here. Us bears, you Indians, we've been through a lot. They tried to kill us. But when you hear them tell it, they make history seem like one big heroic adventure across an empty forest. There were bears and Indians all over the place, sister. They slit all our throats. Why do I feel like mom told us all this already, I said. Roosevelt said, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are. 
and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the 10th. Damn T.S., that's messed up. I only heard the one about the big stick. That big stick is the lie about mercy. Speak softly and carry a big stick. That's what he said about foreign policy. That's what they used on us, bears and Indians both, foreigners on our own land. And with their big sticks, they marched us so far west we almost disappeared. Then two shoes went quiet. That's the way it was with him. He either had something to say or he didn't. I could tell by what kind of shine I saw in the black of his eyes, which one it was. I put two shoes behind some rocks and headed down to find my sister. Thank you. That was Tommy Orange reading from his breakout debut novel, There, There, which explores urban Indian life and presents a bold shift in the representation of Native identity. Vina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guests were Crystal Wapapa of Wapapa's Kitchen and Vincent Medina and Louis Trevino of Makamham and Cafe Aloni in Berkeley. They were joined in conversation by Joshua Hoyt from the Feast of Nations program at the American Indian Child Resource Center. The recording engineers at the JCCSF are Ben Bernardi, Dan Folds, and Alex Espelay. David Kwan edits and produces the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Rashanim Trio, and the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. I'm Jordan Abel. Thanks for listening.